All right, let me begin with the confession. The handout that you have is mistitled again. Okay, that was the title from last week. It should say talking to God instead of listening to God. We talked about that first part of communication. We're we're going through kind of the basics of what it means to be a believer and what it means to live like a believer. So we started by talking about how we got here, saved by God, and then what it means following our salvation, living God's way. And then we started into, uh, last week, into our communication with God, listening to God through His Word. And now we want to look at the second part of that communication, which is talking to God. And uh, hopefully, uh, the goal of this class is, is that that, that we'll be able to answer a few basic questions that will remind you of the right path that you need to be on in order to grow in your relationship with God. Before we uh, begin, let's pray and ask God for help as we do this. Father, we do pray as we have just sung that you would occupy our hearts and own them all. If there be any um, pockets of resistance, Lord, expose those to us. Help us to be better practically at talking to you. Help us to see the big picture of why we ought to do it, how we can do it, and and with what attitude. And we pray that uh, this study in your word would be uh, helpful in, in causing us to grow even more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get into how the Scripture instructs us to pray, let's answer a couple of basic questions regarding prayer first. What is prayer? What comes to mind when you hear the word prayer? Okay. Talking to God. Hey, someone's paying attention. Thank you. Here's the uh, Westminster Confession. Um, It says, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. So, in summary, prayer is communication with God, an expression of our desire, our desires and needs, and then a thankful recognition of our dependence upon Him and His purposes for all things. The second initial question we should ask is, why is it important to pray? Why is it important to pray? And the first most foundational answer to this question is that we are exhorted to pray. In Colossians 4, 2, it says we, that we must devote ourselves to prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul says to pray without what? Without ceasing. Luke 18, 1, Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So the first answer to that question, why, is because we are exhorted to. The second question is that the Scripture clearly demonstrates that praying is simply that something that, that is expected of God's people. So first, we're exhorted to. Secondly, we're expected to. In the Old Testament, the Psalms is just filled with prayers to God. And it reflects a, just a number of different needs and desires and praises that the, the writers have. In the New Testament, Paul offers up many prayers for the churches to which he's writing. And then, of course, Christ Himself is constantly seeing praying, going away to a secluded 
area to, to spend time with his father. And we'll see that, that Jesus' pattern of regular prayer is actually the catalyst or the reason for why the disciples ask him the question, Lord, teach us how to pray, or, or make the statement, Lord, teach us how to pray. Look at that quotation on the front of your handout there from Martin Luther. He says, As, as is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so is the business of Christians to pray. It is expected of us. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. There are many things that we could say about the benefits that we derive from praying, but, but these two basic answers are at the foundation of why we should pray. We are commanded to, exhorted to, and we are expected to. And the rest of our time now will be given to, the an- to answer the question, how should we pray? So turn to Luke 11, because that will be our text for this morning. Luke 11. Disciples are wondering how they should pray, and Jesus' response to them will help remind us how we ought to do it, and, um, and also with what kind of motive or attitude. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8, but would someone read verses 1 through 4 to start with? Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. So, turning to the question of talking to God, how do we do it? How do we talk to God? What do we say and what is our attitude? Well, what we say is found in verses 1 through 4. It also addresses a little bit of our attitude. And then verses 5 through 8 addresses more of what our attitude ought to be. But we want to look first at what ought to fill up our prayer. In verse 1, we learn that Jesus prayed, and as a result, His example uh, led to this question that the disciples wanted to follow His example. And so they say to Jesus in verse 1, teach us how to pray. The disciples are accustomed to seeing the, the Pharisees at the synagogues pray out loud and among the crowds at great lengths. And, and mainly Jesus said in Matthew, uh, I think it's Matthew 6, he, they did it in order to be seen by men. And so Jesus gives them this example of praying in secret. And they know this because they're so close to Him. And this must have been somewhat surprising to them. And interesting, so what is exactly the key to praying? What, what ought to be included in our prayers? And so Jesus gives His response in verses 2 through 4. And we're going to break down this prayer that He gives as an example. And we're going to... to um, to look at each section individually. What you should notice about this prayer is this is not a prayer that Jesus would pray. Uh, specifically, this des- was designed for how the disciples should pray. Okay, The reason we know that is because 
Um, um, well, he does say, lead us not into temptation. Deliver, deliver us from evils. Um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 4. Forgive us our sins. So that obviously Jesus would never have to pray that, that part of the prayer. Um, the rest of this, I think he could pray. Right? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and then lead us not into, into temptation. But what he's doing here is he's modeling for them what they ought to be what they ought to be praying. So let's look at the first section here, Father. First, we're told to address the Father. What might that one word teach us about prayer? What might the word Father, the, the way that he addresses God, teach us about prayer? Okay, good. Our Father is our authority, Right? We we um, we depend upon him. It it implies both authority and intimacy, right? He's not um, first in, in terms of authority. We're praying to the God that we discussed last week, the one who created the world, who hung the stars in the sky, who who created the oceans and set the boundaries. And as our Creator, He created us to live under His authority. That's why we call Him Father. We don't call him buddy. Okay? In praying to him as our father, we are recognizing our dependence upon him, much like a, a child does with his earthly father. And then in terms of intimacy, God is not some abstract, impersonal, detached being like the God of the deists. Right? Who said that God kind of just set the world in motion. He was he created it, but then he just kind of let it go. And then, you know, you're on your own type thing. And so that's why you have uh, people talk about God like um, as an impersonal being, the man upstairs. Like he's not, he's not really attached to what's going on in our, in our lives. He's unconcerned. And I think that's an irreverent way to think about God as the man upstairs. God does not live mostly apart from us. God is not one with whom we rarely interact. God is among us. And as our Father, we have a relationship with Him. We, we have a close fellowship with Him. And, and as we'll see in the parable later in verses 5-8, through eight, our relationship with Him is characterized by the sort of relationship that a father has with a child. And so, Jesus begins this prayer by reminding us of our close relationship with God. Notice also that God's name is to be hallowed. What does hallowed mean? Hallowed be your name. Reverence. Okay, holiness. Sanctity, or, or it's, a, it's a word that means set apart, honored. So, with this word hallowed, we, we see that prayer is not simply to ask things for ourselves. That's why we begin with God. And that's often what you're going to see in the Psalms. It's, it's, about, it's about God and His, um, His greatness, who He is, what He's done. Now, certainly we don't want to exclude our personal requests when we pray because prayer is, is about our desires and, um, as I mentioned earlier, but we shouldn't start there. 
Instead, we ought to first direct our thoughts to God's glory. That's the starting point. Now, when he prays this way, Father, hallowed be thy name, he's not praying that God's name would be hallowed. He's not praying that God, your name would be made more holy. See, God already is holy. God already is glorious. He's simply acknowledging it. And, and so the prayer is that God's glory would be on full display for the world around us. That God would be recognized and worshipped for who He is. And so for our first concern in prayer is that God would be glorified or hallowed. Secondly, this idea of hallowed or holy um, can help prevent us from humanizing Him in a way that we forget who He really is and what He's like. There can often be a tendency in contemporary Christianity towards kind of a crass familiarity with God that does not spring from a spiritual knowledge of who He is. So that even as Christians, our sinful nature can constantly desire to make God into our image and then treat our sin as trivial. And yet, as we approach God, Christ indicates that we should remember whom we are approaching. That, that this is a serious conversation that we're about to have. So, yes, God is the great God of heaven and He is near us. He is our, um, he is our Redeemer and, and even in us, right, by His Spirit. And yet, at the same time, we still need to recognize that God is still God. He is infinitely perfect, incomprehensibly holy, and the com- common response of people when they come into the presence of God is what? What is it? Fear, reverence, humility, dependence. I mean, can you think of examples of people when they came into the presence of God? Give me some examples. Okay, Moses at the, um, at the burning bush. Right? And, he, and, and Moses, even when he said, God, let me see your glory. God said, I need to hide you. Okay, you can't see all my glory or you'll die. And so he kind of saw the backside of God's glory as he was going by. And, of course, at the burning bush as well, um, Moses there has to take off his shoes and he falls down to the ground. Who else? Who else came into the presence of God or God's throne? Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, right? Where Isaiah falls prostrate on the ground and is overwhelmed by his uncleanness and the uncleanness of Israel. Anybody else? How about Job? Job wants to have a meeting with God and God finally gives him one. And it's not the kind of meeting that Job had in mind. It wasn't where Job was going to ask all the questions and God was going to give all the answers. Instead, God said, where were you? when I made all that is. Do you know about all the other things that are going on in the universe right now that I'm taking care of? And Job's response is one of speechlessness. I have nothing left to say. God, you are right. How about John in Revelation 1 when Jesus, the the glorified Jesus, is standing there before him. John falls to his face. 
Even the demon-possessed man in Mark 5 saw Jesus from a distance and ran and bowed down before Jesus. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this is what we ought to recognize when we come to God in prayer. And I think sometimes we can become a little bit flippant or uh, irreverent when we come before God's throne and think of Him as something less than the sovereign God of the universe. And we have to be careful about that. He's not our buddy down the street, but He's the perfect and holy God of the universe. You don't approach Him the same way as you would you know, your buddy down the street. And so the recognition of God should lead us to reverence and worship in our prayers. Our prayers ultimately ought to be about God. Even when we make requests, even when we express to God our desires and our frustrations, those frustrations and desires ought to be in light of God and His glory and what's going on in the world to advance the recognition of God's glory. So we see that our prayer should recognize first the relationship between us and God, our Father, and that the starting point and the spring of the motivation of our prayer ought to be for God's glory. Hallowed be your name. That's the starting point. The next line is, your kingdom come. At the end of verse 2, your kingdom come. What does this line indicate about how we should pray? What do you think? Okay. All right, so we're thinking still about life in terms of God and we're longing for the time when the kingdom of Christ will be established on the earth. Notice it's not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come. Not only should should um, desiring God's glory be displayed, but more specifically, as we go to God in prayer, we should primarily be concerned with how God's glory is going to be displayed. And one of the great ways in all of history that God's glory will be displayed is in the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this verse teaches, a, teaches us a couple of things about prayer. First, prayer should be an expression of hope in God's coming kingdom. That we should remind ourselves often that, that this world, this kingdom in which we live right now is not the final and great kingdom that there's a time when Christ will consummate His eternal kingdom. If you read through 1 Peter, you'll notice that how Peter addresses the church. He says, as aliens who are chosen. And the entire book of 1 Peter has that flavor of expectation, like we don't belong here. That's why we're called pilgrims, aliens, strangers, peculiar people in the sense that we're special or set apart. But this is not our final home. There's an expectation of this coming kingdom and our citizenship in that kingdom. So our prayer should not primarily be concerned about our most temporal desires and our most temporal wants or getting what we want here and now, but rather it should be an expression of our, our, our greatest hope, which is that God's kingdom will come to this earth and that we will be joined with Christ in that kingdom. So, first, under this one, we should see uh, we should have an expression of hope in God's coming kingdom. Second, our prayer should be an expression of humble submission to and trust in God. Our prayer should be an expression of humble submission to and trust in God. 
when we pray that God's kingdom would come, then we're ultimately praying that His will or His purposes will be carried out. God, You have promised that this will take place and now I'm praying in line with what You have promised. I want to see Your desires come to pass and so I'm going to pray for them specifically. Your kingdom come. Isn't that interesting that God's already going to bring this about, right? God's kingdom is sure, it's guaranteed. And yet Jesus says, when you pray, pray that the kingdom will come. You might think, well, why? It's already going to come. And what it shows us is our dependence on God, doesn't it? It shows us our humility that we are wanting to see God's purposes come to pass. And I think this is one of the most difficult parts of prayer because it may go, may go against everything that's in us to pray with, with God's view in mind. Particularly in times of difficulty and, and tremendous need, we want God, our primary request usually is that one thing that's troubling us. And what Jesus starts with first prayer is that God would be glorified, hallowed be your name, and that your kingdom would come. Pray with a bigger picture in view. Do you remember how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before His crucifixion? He said, My Father, again, same way that we pray, my, our Father. He says, My Father, if it is possible, make this cup pass from Me, be taken away from Me, yet not as I will, but as You will. Christ, even to on His way to certain death, prayed that the will of His Father would be done. Not His own, apart from God, or anyone else's. And that's the way we ought to pray. God, Your will be done. We want to see what You want to happen come to pass. Alright, any questions or comments on this, this first part? Verse 2. All right, what about verses 3 and 4? What can we learn about how we can pray from verses 3 and 4? Next line, verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. There's a couple things we should note about this. First, that we should ask for daily provision. Literally, give us day by day our daily bread. It's worded in order to emphasize our ongoing dependence upon God to meet all of our needs. And, and it's almost like it's a prayer for not for um, prosperity or abundance, but rather just enough to get by for today. Isn't that interesting? How often we want to kind of um, you know hit it big, this get-rich-quick idea. And, and maybe we include that kind of idea when we pray. You know, God, if I just had this huge load of money, I could do so many things. And what Jesus is saying, just pray for enough for today. And you know what that helps us with is this daily dependence, this ongoing regular expectation that we are, are dependent upon God. We can't do it on our own. Notice the word our, our there. Give us this day our daily bread. It seems like what Jesus is saying here is that, that we ought to be praying for more than just ourselves, 
that we ought to be praying for one another, that God would give them enough for their daily provisions. One of the verses that my, my dad would often quote uh, was Proverbs 38 and 9. It's right there on your handout. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? See, this is the idea of the abundance, right? If I, if I get this huge lump sum of money, I'm, I might forget about you and say, Who's the Lord? Why do I need Him? I can just rest on all of this money that I have. I can get whatever I need. Which is not true, right? And, or the other extreme, or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of God. So if I don't have enough, if I'm living in abject poverty, then I might actually go against your word and start to, to, to be tempted to steal. So God, give me just enough to get by. That's what I'm asking for. Isn't that a great prayer for us to be praying? Give us this day our daily bread. Most directly, this verse calls us to trust God to meet our physical needs, recognizing that He is our provider. If we come to God anxious, worried about the future, about our provisions, then the best place to take those worries, those anxieties, is to God at His feet. Because God's the one who can take care of those things. Matthew 6, Christ tells His audience that if God so clothes the lilies of the field what you're here today or like the grass that's here today and gone tomorrow, then how much more will He care for us who are made into His image and adopted into His family? How much more will He care for us? And the implied answer is so much more. He's not going to forget about us. He's going to take care of us. And so as we pray this prayer, we're learning to trust Him as our physical provider. We should also pray for Him to, or we should also trust in Him as our spiritual provider as well. And if God gives us enough for our daily bread physically, then certainly we ought to also pray for God to, to provide for us enough spiritually as well. And there's a quotation that I'm kind of is bouncing around in my mind. I can't think of the exact wording or who wrote it or who said it, but, but I'll give you the basic idea, and that is that, that we can't take enough air in our lungs for a whole week. Nor can we take enough food in our bodies you know, for a whole month. We take enough, just, just enough, to make it to the next meal or the next breath. And that's the way that, that it is with, with our dependence on God. That, that we can't take in enough Bible and we can't, we can't take in enough of God's provision all at once. We'll just take it all. God, give all the spiritual provision that I need now. And then I don't have to come to church the rest of my life. I don't have to read the Bible anymore. I don't have to, to talk to you or any of those other things. See, we need God every day, every hour. I need Thee every hour, most gracious Lord. And so we need to recognize that, that um, when we pray, we are depending on God for our physical and our spiritual needs. That we would just have enough. That we just and the idea of this daily, this daily bread or this daily spiritual needs is that we are constantly leaning on God. That that we constantly are in need of Him. All right. Um, next, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. In verse 4, we see really a confession cloaked in a form of petition. 
The confession is, forgive us of our sins. And the the petition is to forgive us of our sins. The confession is that we apparently have... Um, we have either harbored bitterness or have sinned against someone else. And, and so in acknowledging our sins, we're actually acknowledging our indebtedness to God because of our sins. And so we're pleading with God to forgive us our sins. This is not something we just do at salvation. When we were in New York, Tim was telling me about this guy that used to attend their church and, and he's adopted this strange view of forgiveness that, that we only need to ask for forgiveness when we're first saved. And then after that, no more. And um, and yet what Jesus instructs us here is that our confession of sin ought to be regular. When we pray, we ought to pray that, that, we, um, that we ought to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness from God. Now, the big question here is, in verse 4, is, is Jesus calling for a kind of a merit-based forgiveness? So, because I've forgiven this person, God, you have to forgive me. Is that what Jesus is calling for? Of course, we have to be careful because we learned in week 1 in, in uh, Titus and Ephesians that God saves us not because of the righteous things that we have done, not because of the forgiveness that we have granted to someone else. So, God doesn't look at us and say, well, you know what? You actually have been pretty forgiving to other people. So because of that, I'm going to, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. That's not what Jesus is calling for. We can't earn our salvation. That's why it's called grace. It's unmerited favor, unearned favor. This line instead indicates that we, we ought to be forgiving of others. In other words, it's the proof that we have been forgiven by God. So, so we can't mess up the order. Because I forgive, God forgives me. That's not true. It's the other way around. Because God has forgiven me, I can forgive others. Because I recognize the weight of my sin before a holy God, I can forgive others of something that's less offensive to me than, than my sin was to God. Or another way to put it is that those who have been forgiven will forgive. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Look at the quotation here from Thomas Watson. Our forgiving others is not a cause of God's forgiving us, but a sign. Or you can say an evidence or a fruit. We need not climb up into heaven to see whether our sins were forgiven. Let us look into our hearts and see if we can forgive others. If we can, we need not doubt, but God has forgiven us. Our loving others is the reflection of God's love to us. So this verse here, verse 4, indicates that we ought to have a period of self-examination. That we don't just kind of just run into the courtroom of God's presence unclean. You know, no Israelite would just kind of run into the most holy place of God without first making sure that they were qualified to be in there, right? That they were actually a high priest and that they had the proper sacrifices. And we shouldn't should uh should not either run into the presence of God um without first examining ourselves. All right, we need to keep moving. 
How does this prayer close here at the end of verse 4? Lead us not into, into temptation. It's a prayer of protection from temptation. Remember, before we came to Christ, we were dead to God and alive to sin. Since that time, we have been made alive to God and dead to sin so that we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the sinful inclinations that we have. And yet, Satan still is working to, to, uh, to oppose us and to get us to fall into temptation. And so, um, this is something that we ought to, to pray for, that God would deliver us from temptation. And what you should know as a Christian is that you now have the ability to be delivered from sin. You have all the tools that you need to be delivered from sin. And so pray in this way. Pray that God would deliver you from the evil that's in your heart. We are naturally inclined toward evil. Our flesh is warring against our spirit. So pray for, for yourself to be delivered from the evil that's in your own heart. Pray for yourself to be delivered from the evil that's in this world. And then, of course, pray for yourself to be delivered from the, the evil one, the one who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, to destroy. So to summarize, prayer is communion with God. He has the authority over us, and yet it's also intimate. He's our Father. It's to be done with God's glory in view. Hallowed be your name. And His purposes in view, right? Your kingdom come. It's an expression of our dependence upon and trust in God to meet our needs. Give us this daily day our daily bread and then also to protect us from evil. Um, lead us not into temptation. And then it's to be done in humility, recognizing the need for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. So, um, maybe it would help you to think of um, an acrostic when you pray. I, I often think of the acrostic pray, P-R-A-Y. P is praise, R is repent, A is ask, and Y is yield. I think that's orig- I think that was um, Steve Pettit that um, wrote that in his little booklet that he wrote several years ago. I, I found that to be helpful. There's also another one called Acts, Adoration, Confession. Maybe I should write these on the board real quick before we move on. And that just might help you as you're as you're praying. Think about what kinds of things ought I to be praying? What kinds of things ought to be included in my prayer? And what you'll find in the scriptures is that is that um, these elements are included in many of the prayers that believers pray. So adoration, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Confession, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who who sinned against us. Thanksgiving, read through the Psalms, you find this over and over again. And then supplication is the asking part. Right? That we're actually making requests before God. God wants us to make requests. Don't think that you're more spiritual because you don't make requests. Right? Are there any questions on how to pray? The elements there?
I guess I already had the pray one on there for you. All right, let's look at verses 5 through 8, and we'll try to cover this quickly. Verse 5, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are, are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So, before we get, begin, let's identify certain things about this parable. This is um, We want to understand the background of this. So first, to whom is Jesus speaking? Disciples. Good. Verse 1, right? They see him praying and they say, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? So he's speaking to his disciples. Who are the characters in the story? Verses 5 through 8. Who's one character? What was that? Okay, the midnight visitor and? Okay, his friend who's asleep. And the setting is, again, it's midnight. And the dilemma is that the man has a guest and the custom is to treat him with food, to care for him, to provide food for him, but you couldn't go down to the local you know, grocery store or 24-hour uh, food mart. And the problem is that he doesn't have the food and, and he knows someone who does. And he's, he's faced with two options. He either goes to the man next door, the, the friend, who will surely be asleep and, and it will be considered rude and, um, uh, for him to wake him up. So he either goes to him and, and makes his plea to him or he leaves his guests without being cared for. And, of course, in that kind of um, culture, when, a, when there was a traveler who was coming, he had to, he had to be cared for. It wasn't, you didn't go find a holiday inn or something like that. Um, the other thing that we need to recognize is that the average home during that time consisted of probably one or two rooms. And so families tended to sleep together on a large mat in one of those rooms. And the doors had heavy bolts on them that would wake the entire house up uh, if, if it was opened. And so, you um, mothers of small kids, or you remember those times when you had small kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so, the question really becomes, who has the nerve to wake up the neighbor and the family in order to ask for bread? Who's willing to put aside his own pride and recognize they need only what you know the other person has to offer? And so, this gives us a great lesson for prayer that we must not come to God as self-sufficient. I've already got this under control and I'm just going to tell you what I'm doing, but rather as completely deficient. God, we are completely in your uh, we are completely under your mercy. And this cannot happen apart from you. And that's why I'm coming to you with this plea like the midnight visitor. So what does the man do? He wakes the friend. And the response that he gets is just what he didn't want to hear in verse 7. Go away. I'm not going to wake up the rest of my house. But what does Jesus say in verse 8? He says, effectively, because of the man's boldness, the friend will help. 
It's not because he's his friend that he's going to help him, but it's because of his boldness, his persistence, that he's not going to he's not going to leave without that bread. And so that prompted his friend to respond to his request. What do you think this teaches us about prayer? Not only are we supposed to go to God with humility, I can't do this. You have to handle this. You have to you have to provide here, God. But also that um that God is willing to meet our needs. God is willing to meet our needs, particularly when we are persistent in our prayers. We see this very clearly in verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So the promise is God will meet your needs. Now, this doesn't mean that, that God is like the friend who doesn't want to help. And that's the point that Jesus is making. You know, if you have a friend who is actually a little bit less inclined to help you, because of the the trouble that it's going to bring to him, how much more is your father going to help you because he wants to take care of you? He's much different than that friend. Now, this doesn't mean that we can get whatever we want when we pray. This is not the name it and claim it prosperity gospel that's preached out there in many churches where we just name something and we claim it, I believe that God will give that to me and now I keep praying for that thing. And voila, it's ours, right? That's not what Jesus is calling for. In fact, that goes against what He said in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. So sometimes we're not going to get enough for a week. In James 4, James says, We have not because we ask not. But he also says that we have not because we ask with wrong motives so that we can consume it on our lust. So sometimes when we ask for something, some big thing, this name it and claim it idea, we ask for something, God doesn't give it to us because we're asking with the wrong motives. Or maybe it's just that we don't need that. And I I like what D.A. Carson says here in his book on prayer called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. He says, If a boy asks his father for several things, all within the Father's power to give, the Father may give him one of them right away. Delay giving another, decline to give him a third, set up a condition for a fourth. The Father may decline to give something because He knows it's not the child's best interests. He may delay giving something else because He knows that so many requests from His young son are temporary and whimsical. He may also withhold something that he knows the child needs until the child asks for it in the appropriate way. But above all, the wise father is more interested in a relationship with his son than in merely giving him things. Have you ever found that your prayers for temporal things uh, seemed so important at the time and you prayed for them for quite a long time and then you finally realized, you know what, I don't need that. And God knew all along. Right, And so sometimes God doesn't give us what we want because He knows they're temporary and, you know, like a child. Maybe we're praying for something that, that we don't really need. But ultimately, what the Father wants is a relationship. He wants His Son not just to give Him things, but to, to have a relationship. 
in verses 11 through 13, um, Jesus goes on to say that, that the Father's going to give good gifts to the Son when He asks. I mean, which father would give his son a snake when he asked for a fish? Which father would give a scorpion when he asked for an egg? Verse 12. And then he, he relates it to us. Verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and you do, you don't give gifts that are going to harm them, then how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Christ here is pointing to God's character and desire, that He is good and He desires to give us and all of His children good gifts. And the best gift that we can receive of all is a more, a more of His presence, His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the best possible gift that God could give and the one that we should desire above all else. And this should be a challenge to us because our prayers can often be filled with a laundry list of physical or relational desires, job promotion, life desires. And all those things are certainly worthy of prayer, right? I mean, we ought to be praying for the things that we desire. We ought to be praying about the situations that are, are frustrating or ailing us. But if that's all we, if we're consumed by those things, then we're missing the point of prayer. Prayer is about a relationship and it's about God giving us what we need most. And that is a better sense of His Spirit, a, a, more, a, a greater filling of His Spirit, a greater controlling by His Spirit. And so take stock of, of how you pray. Take stock of the things that you pray for and what, what kind of purposes do you have for the physical things that you pray for? Okay, that's, that's how I um, try to encourage us how to pray is when we pray for physical things. It's not wrong to pray for those things. Okay, but, but when we pray for those things, we ought to do it in, in light of God's greater purposes. How does this fit into the greater narrative of what God's doing in my life and in His purposes of bringing about His kingdom? All right, so to sum up, prayer is a privilege where we convene with the one and the only holy God. From Jesus' example, we learn that we are to pray with reverence, trust, humility, and then ultimately our prayer should be an expression of our desire for God Himself, to fellowship with Him, and God, who is our loving Heavenly Father, will answer our prayers and give Himself abundantly to us. Any thoughts or questions on any of this? All right. Matt.
Right. Yeah, and I agree. There, um, you know, it doesn't make us less of a child if we fail to ask for forgiveness. Um, and I, I would say that it's not so much the order as much as that it's there. I mean, it, it ought to be in our prayers. Maybe not in every single prayer. I mean, we have examples in the Psalms even where the psalmists don't don't ask for forgiveness of their sins. Or you have like Nehemiah right before he goes to the king just says a quick prayer, God help me, effectively. And it's not like, okay, i got to get all, all these in here. Father, hallowed be thy name. You know, please forgive me my sins and then give me my daily, and then help me with this, you know. There's the, the nature of our communication with God is that it ought to be ongoing and just just regular part of, of our, you know, thinking. I mean, we're... we're directing our thoughts toward God rather than just thinking apart from God. We're directing our thoughts toward God and so not necessarily every single one of those ought to include this, but I think what Jesus is teaching us is that the regular pattern is that we should be asking for forgiveness of sins. I think mainly is that it ought to be included rather than the location of it in our prayers. But but yeah, I can see advantages to, to both you know, earlier in the prayer and later. Yeah. Well, there is, uh, and I was trying to find it just now, but um, there is a, a verse that says, "If I harbor sin, sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me." So I think that's the idea of kind of, I'm not willing to let go of the sin, and so I'm just gonna go ahead and still talk to God. And usually, the case is we don't talk to God when we're harboring sin in our heart. That's usually the case, but there are times I think just speaking from personal experience where I have had a sin that I harbored in my heart and didn't want to talk to God about it at all ask for forgiveness for some of the other sins but leave that one alone type thing and that's the type of thing where God's saying listen I mean are, are you do, are you serious about this relationship with me or are you just wanting to enjoy your sin and enjoy the benefits of being my child you know let's 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 open up the door to all of the sins, you know, not just the ones that are easy to get rid of. All right, good. Well, we need to we need to be dismissed. Let me pray, and we'll do that. Lord, thank you for uh, the gift of being able to communicate with you. Thank you that you've made clear to who to us who you are. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to um, humbly depend upon you as we pray to you regularly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.